Podcast. Uh, this is the Nylon Calculus Podcast. This is episode four. Joining us today is Sentil Natarajan. Um, and Sentil is a writer for the website. Uh, he is a student at Rice University and he is the uh, co founder of a startup called uh, Zeal Solutions. Um, <laughs> Thank we'll, you, we'll, Kevin. We'll get in. We'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, yeah, Sentil is a is a busy guy. Uh, I think you're giving too much credit. Uh, <laughs> thank, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Yeah, the uh, hope, uh, now, now this time we've got it uh, actually recording. We we should be yep, good. The button uh, is pressed. Yeah, I, I blew it. We we talked for about 20 minutes, <laughs> and I. D- Forgot to hit record, so you guys missed missed. There's a long lost uh, half podcast with with Sentil that's out there in the in the universe, but not available for anybody to listen to. Yeah, <laughs> one of the lost archives. We'll have to find it at some point. <laughs> All right, Sentil. So, uh, how how did you get into basketball originally? Um. So I actually I was born in India. So I moved to the United States when I was seven. And obviously, like around that time, um, you know, New Orleans is a huge football town. We've got LSU, we've got the New Orleans Saints, and really the Hornets, a little bit of an afterthought in that sense. Um, so I started off like as a just a huge football fan, like breathing and living the same religion as every other New Orleanian, which was the Saints. And it was awesome. But in the we had the 06 season, which was really the Chris Paul breakout season and you know back then we still had Byron Scott actually leading his team to victories <laughs> though I'm sure having obviously having Chris Paul helps a little bit you know they had Chris Paul David West Tyson Chandler just a great core and um you know they they took such a deep they took a great deep run into the Western Conference Finals before Rob before they met the Spurs and Robert Horry just Dropped the people's elbow on David West. Uh, <laughs> I was still, still a little bit bitter about that, but I digress. Um, really? I, I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, I just feel like, you know, that was the season. And then after that, they had the Tyson Chandler injuries and just the core of the team was never the same. Um, but, you know, after that point, started sort of getting to a little bit more interested in basketball. And I credit my interest in basketball to three things. So one – that New Orleans, that 06 New Orleans Hornets season with Chris Paul. Two, the seven seconds or less Suns, just because they were, they were so much fun to watch. They made basketball and actually like an exciting experience. Sorry, an exciting experience. And three, uh, around that same time, when we had Tracy, Tracy McGrady doing his 13 points in 35 seconds uh, wizard routine with the Rockets. And that was completely mind-bending and impossible to understand i still keep a clip of that on my 
desktop, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. So a, yeah. I was gonna say that, that that's a good thing to revisit every once in a while, watching T Mac uh, go bananas. I remember telling myself like, you know, if you're ever getting to an exam time and you think it's impossible, just rewatch that. Tell yourself nothing is impossible. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, that seven seconds or less team I, I, of the Suns, I, I think, is like was. Um, for a lot of people kind of like brought them back to basketball or like if they didn't need to be brought back was like formative for them uh, in, in terms of basketball fandom. Like I was like a, a Bulls fan growing up when I was a kid, when I was like five, I, I picked my, picked my teams basically. Uh, and I, What's that? Bandwagoning? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a band. I was a little kid bandwagon jumper. Uh, I'm still paying for those sins. I, I jumped on the the Bulls and the Cowboys bandwagons, and Ooh, ne- neither okay. of them have neither of them have returned to prominence <laughs> really since then. The Bulls came close, but then Derek yeah. Ro- then Derrick Rose's knee happened, and that that it went away. Um, yeah. But in uh, but like during the time at, right after Jordan retired. It was pretty hard to like be a Bulls fan and like follow the NBA <laughs> because they were terrible. Um, but yeah, the, then the Suns happened, um, and the Bulls like right before that, it, it also started to be like a playoff team again. But that that Suns team was like the first team that I really watched. That I was watching not because I was a like a specific fan of that team, but I just I really liked how they played so oh, yeah. much that like I would just if they were on TV, I was watching them. Oh, for sure. Like when you have the league, like, right, they always say like in the post-Jordan era, before we got to the current uh, era of NBA basketball, like there was, as the league was like struggling to find something, anything to like latch onto to find pop, to gain popularity again, post-Jordan, like the seven seconds or less suns were like one of those things that like, no matter who you rooted for, what team you were a fan of, like you could watch the suns, you could watch a suns game and always come away entertained. Yeah, they they definitely had that um, going for them. The the pace was so great. Steve Nash was like just so much fun to watch. Um, and Amari Stoudemire dunking on people in the pick and roll never got old. <laughs> ne- never got old. So um, I don't know if you remember this, but you, there was a website during that time frame that was really popular called You Got Dunked On. And the two people that I remember dunking on people, so it's yougotdunkedon.com. I think it might still exist. I, I, I do not remember this. I hope it still exists. Um, but it was it was basically like these little short clips of guys dunking on other guys. And like the two like MVPs of that website were Amari Stoudemire and <laughs> and, uh, and Nene. Like wow. Nene, Nene had so many just like filthy like dunks on people's heads. Um, during that during that time frame, and, I hope it's still. I hope that site still exists. NBA Twitter would have a field day with it. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I don't know. I I haven't been there in a long time, just because if I go to like watch somebody get dunked on now, I just go to YouTube. But um, they had their yeah, they had a whole site. It was and it was just dedicated to people getting dunked on, and it was awesome. Um, but I just remember Amari and, and, uh, Nene was the other guy for whatever reason that stuck out to me. Cause he was, he was just so aggressive with his, du- yeah. with his dunks. Um, but, but like Nene has uh, been pretty underrated throughout his career. 
Yeah, I think like his his kind of inability to like consistently stay healthy has been like the thing that's undermined him a lot in terms of his reputation. But like the fact that Nene is never, I don't think he's ever been an all star is kind of crazy to me because he yeah. was so good for so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you don't play enough games and people don't really like, <laughs> look at you that way, but it's just for sure from a talent perspective, I feel like how has that guy not been a been an all star before? Oh, yeah. But um, he's right. He's always been right there, right around the cusp of that. The injury tolls like just it's so hard for so many people. Like it, I mean that's basically like what's doing in Chris Paul as well, right? Like I'm sorry that Chris Paul broke everything in the second round of the playoffs, but that's not gonna. Chris Paul is still one of the greatest point guards of all time, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah, I, I feel like people unfairly hold like a lot of his like playoff his team's playoff fallacies on him, which, uh, whether you like it or not, I guess just team success and correlating to individual success is just never a good idea. Yeah. I think like, um, it's, that is just like, uh, it's a crazy thing. It, it, that, that, uh, putting it on, putting like, a a team failures solely at the feet of one of their superstars is, always drives me crazy um because like we've seen it over and over again where like a guy can be the like a guy can be the best guy in a series and still lose to a better team yeah um like we've we've seen lebron lose multiple times (laughs) and it's like no one is better than lebron and he still has lost in the playoffs uh, many times because he was playing better teams. Heck, it was the uh, same knock on Jordan too before he got his first title. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just a really a really dumb argument that people love to make because it's a it's a way that if they for whatever reason don't like a player, they can just basically discount that player by saying that. And like uh, Carmelo is another example of that. Like people talk about how Carmelo hasn't had that much playoff success. Like with Chris Paul, they're like we never made it past the second round of the playoffs. With Carmelo, they move the goalposts and say like, "Well, he's only been passed once." And it's like, "Well, but he did it. Like he proved that it, he there's not like there's not like something intrinsic to him that makes it so that he can't do it." Um, but yeah, people people just always move the goalposts. And people still like try to say that LeBron isn't isn't like instead of moving the goal instead of like having. The argument be well, he can't win the big one. Now it's like, well, he'll never be Jordan, and it's like, well, that's right. that's stupid. He's a different human being, so of course <laughs> he'll never he'll never have exactly the same career as Michael Jordan. Oh yeah, but like, but, I mean, at this point, like that's the only thing that's left for him to chase, right? No one else can, like he himself said, no one no one else can hold anything else against him now. He's basically come out and smashed every single expectation that was laid out in front of him. Yeah, like. The the only thing people can like that that don't like him can hold on to is like oh like his finals record he's lost a bunch of times but it's like okay but the flip side of that is that he's like dragged his team to the finals seven times yeah you know like he uh the the I don't look at his losing to the Spurs in two thousand seven in the finals when he was like still on the come up. As like a detriment to him, I look at that as like, wow, they really overachieved to even be in the finals in the first place. Like the fact that he he was able to like almost single handedly beat that uh, Pistons team to get to that, those finals was like an achievement on its own that deserved praise. Not like, oh well, he made it to the finals and then he got he got 
destroyed, like that's a bad, that's a demerit. Like, oh yeah, no, <laughs> that's not how that works. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we could spend a lot of time on the narrative, on the narrative and individual player legacy uh, issues, but. Yeah. Boy, well, well, yeah, but we have a lot of other stuff to talk to, so let's <laughs> so so let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, moving to to the thing that you wrote most recently for this site, you you talk, did an article about the speed of ball movement and sort of how that's related to offensive efficiency. Um. So for anybody that like hasn't had a chance to read your piece, which they should because it's very good, but for people that haven't had a chance to to read it, um, what did you look at and, and sort of what did you find in, in in looking at that? Yeah, so there's actually a corollary to a piece that I did shortly before joining Nylon, and in that piece, so NBA Stats provides us a lot of great tools to assess ball movement, and one of the things they do is they allow us to like categorize like you know, teams and uh, players by, like, you know, classify their actions relative to the amount of dribbles they take or the how, on average, like, how long they touch the ball before moving it. Um, so the piece that I did earlier was about looking at how, how long or how many dribbles a player takes before shooting and how effective they are classified by how many dribbles they take at those shots. So this time what I did was to look a little bit more directly, I looked at something like called average seconds per touch, which is basically how long does a player have the ball before passing it off or shooting it, like doing another action and basically handing off responsibility. And so the first thing that we looked at and that NBA Stats allows us to look at is that it gives us the average seconds per touch for every single team, which in this case is going to basically represent on average for a certain team's five-man unit out there, how long does a player have the ball before moving it again or shooting or taking a shot? And in this case, you'd expect uh, teams with a shorter average time per touch, like the Warriors, uh, which symbolizes like very quick ball movement, and teams that have a very high average seconds per touch to be teams like the Lakers in which you slog through possessions and you're taking a lot of dribbles and there's a lot of isolation play involved. And one of the things that I found was when I compared the average time per touch against offensive rating, I really came up with four quadrants of teams in the NBA. Teams that have killer ball ball movement and killer efficiency, like Golden State. Teams that have an ISO-heavy offense but that are still efficient, like Cleveland and OKC. Teams that move the ball quickly but not to great results like, you know, Philadelphia and teams that are just plain bad and upsetting to watch that, you know, they slog along on every single possession and it still doesn't end with a positive outcome. Teams like the Nets and the Lakers. And so that's what you really have when you start comparing this is you come up with four quadrants of NBA teams and it's really four different, four very stylistically different teams. In fact, one of the great case studies that came out of this was the Spurs. And the Spurs are in that top left quadrant, in the same quadrant as, you know, the Warriors, but they're way closer to the middle. And I don't think anyone really comes close to the Warriors. They're almost off the charts in this in this exercise. But the Spurs are, you know, generally, in, when we think about, uh, this is like perception versus reality, when we think about, you know, the MO, the model team for perfect ball movement and beautiful basketball, uh, 
it's the Spurs, and we think of them from that 2013 title, um, 2013-2014 season. And you see, but in fact, San Antonio's average time per touch from that season was 2.48 seconds. The season after, the 2014-15 season, was actually 2.52 seconds. And then this past season, it jumped up again to 2.64. So they're, while they're actually like perceived as the ideal of quick, perfect ball movement, they've, they're actually a team that's been getting a little bit slower every year. And I think that aligns with what you can expect when they added LaMarcus Aldridge to this team as – you know, players like Tim Duncan became less lesser parts of the offense, and it centers more around their two current superstars, Kawhi and LMA. And you saw this in the playoffs that once teams were able to key in on the Spurs by forcing their two stars to try to beat the Kawhi and Aldridge to try to beat them, the Spurs just you know a little bit weren't caught off guard. And you hate to see that for or say that of any Greg Popovich coach team, but I think. They weren't ready to adapt to teams forcing their two stars to beat them. And unfortunately for them, stylistically, that's the way that they'd been playing that entire season, that it was sort of exposed in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, like, it, it makes a lot of sense that they ended up going toward, cl- more towards that uh, hold-the-ball style um, just because, like, their, their guards who were the biggest reason for the how much the ball mo- used to hum around the perimeter mm-hmm. um the Parker and, and Ginobili had both kind of slowed down you bring in somebody like LaMarcus Aldridge who uh like does like to hold the ball and you know go to work on in the uh in the mid-range uh, it makes sense to me that that, that would happen um it it makes me wonder if there, if he he could have, uh, if Lamarcus could have fit in better if he was just doing more of like, uh, you know, they they were whipping the ball around and then he's like either shooting or passing and not really taking very much time to think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's never really been his game, and so it, it's not to- totally surprising to me that like th- that they are not the same. Uh, you know, ball ball movement, uh, swing happy offense that they used to be. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves uh, now that uh, Tim Duncan is leaving, and they've got Pau Gasol, which does not, to me, make me think that they're going to be uh, a lot faster. Pau is another one that likes to like hold the ball and yep. kind of go to work. So um, it should be interesting to see, to oh, see yeah. how, how the Spurs continue to to change and evolve in terms of their offense. It's definitely been incredible. Like, see them like they've always like been sort of at the forefront of these shifts. They were at the forefront of the shift towards pace and space and quick twitch ball movement. But then, like, they also then, while everyone was moving towards that, now you see them sort of like almost like regressing back into a the mid range happy, a little bit slowed down possession style basketball as well. Yeah, I think like my my guess is that. Um, and it's just a guess because I have no information about how the Spurs actually think about these things. But my my guess is that like they probably looked at like everybody's trying to get threes and layups, and like all these uh, defenses are designed to stop that. 
Um, and so, like, what the thing that defenses are going to give up is the mid-range shot. So mm-hmm. if you if you get guys that are really great at hitting mid-range shots and can make that more painful for the defense, then maybe that opens those th- those shots up, like the the threes and layups. It opens those back up for you uh, yeah. and prevents the defense from being able to sort of like try to take that away. I mean, that's basically Mark Cuban's entire zigzag theory is predicated around that exact same school yeah. of thought. Yeah, and he's had the he's had, I mean Cuban has has had the best mid range guy since Michael Jordan on his team for uh, you know the last decade plus. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki is is I think I think if I'm pretty sure looking at the numbers like he's been the best mid range shooter essentially since MJ retired. Um, th- yeah, that, one of the greatest shooting big men of all time for sure. Yeah, and. I mean, Dirk is basically. If you had Dirk on your team, you were gonna have like at least a pretty good offense uh, for basically his whole career, uh, and usually you were gonna have a, a pretty great one. And I think a lot of that was just there's no there's nowhere for defenses to run when Dirk mm-hmm. is on the floor because uh, he's always a bailout option, and like he's a bailout option that's gonna hit almost 50% of his mid-range jumpers, which is just, uh, as, as a bailout, as bailout options go, is just really, really good. Yeah, I mean, even this past season, the, the Mavericks were, like, right there in the top third of the league as far as offensive rating went. And, you know, like, it's just, they're very steady because, exactly like you said, the presence of Dirk and Dirk's efficiency, like, makes it really... Uh, makes it a lot easier for everyone else on that team to perform at a high level. Yeah, the the so um, full disclosure for everybody listening to the podcast that doesn't already know, I interned with the Mavs this past season. Um, so uh, I, when I say this, I'll say we because uh, for the season I was with them. <laughs> well, we uh, were very, we were still very good on offense. Our defense was was not so good, <laughs> um, but but that that was uh, I think a, a big personnel thing. Hopefully Dallas will be better on defense this year. Uh, but it's Dirk is going to be another year older, and, and building a a good defense around Dirk at this point in his career is is probably a, a bit of a challenge. Um, but. He's gonna prop that prop that offense up, and I, I think he he's still. Um, I know, like the not this past year, but the year before, there was a lot of people saying that they thought Dirk might be washed up, uh, and I said no. He's playing with Rajon Rondo, and he has no space to operate in. Like, give him like even like a, just any kind of point guard that can shoot, and he'll be fine. And then he got Darren Williams on his team, and he went right back to being same old Dirk, and on at least on offense, and so. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was very happy that to, to be proven right about that. <laughs> um, that, that was a combined thing of me in really liking Dirk and, and not liking Rajon Rondo, uh, which is a sore subject because my, my Chicago Bulls signed Rajon, uh, no. this, this off season. So going to have uh, to do a dive into seeing how Rondo's going to affect, uh, the players around him. How yeah. not just his own three point percentage, but you know how he's always, I think Rondo's always sort of functioned a little bit. The perception of Rondo has always operated a little bit away from reality as well. Yeah, for sure. He gets a lot of assists, so people think think that he's uh, 
that he's this very uh, helpful offensive player. And I I think if you go back and look at the offenses that he's been at the at the head of, uh, consistently they, to my eyes, underperform the the talent on them. I think even like when he was in Boston with the the big three, he had three Hall of Famers on the team. Oh yeah. And they like I think they the best they ever did as a group was like a league average offense. Like the reason they were so good was because their defense was like uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it was like historically great, but their offense was just kind of so so. Um, and you know, but people I don't know the, the perception of Rondo to me has always been different than than what I think the reality is. Like you said and. Um, it has only gotten worse, I think, since he got, had his injury. Like, I think he's he's less effective than he used to be, and like his reputation is kind of just the same because people yep. have kind of ignored his like how much he's lost since uh, having that injury. Mm-hmm. But that's a long digression. We've gone away from our, from our talking points, <laughs> uh, which is fine. That's what the, the podcast is for us for fun basketball conversations. But I I got to bring us back to some stuff you've written on nylon. And we actually were talking a lot about narratives and and about uh, uh, perception versus reality. One thing that people have a have a love of saying is that people that go to Team USA and play on the Olympic team, whenever they come back, that you know if they if they make a leap, that's always credited to Team USA. You actually, for Nylon, a couple of weeks ago, took a look at the numbers on that. And what did you find for that? So this was interesting, right? Because everyone loves Coach K, LeBron, everyone around the Team USA program loves to parade like the function of being on Team USA as being directly applicable to a young player's development. And interestingly enough, so I took a look at this and just basically took a – Pretty nice, uh, all-encompassing metric, box plus minus. And I looked at the BPM for Team USA players, for players, uh, whether it was the Olympics or just uh, the World Cup, and also just for other, like, you know, good players in the NBA. How did they develop? And it's interesting because the growth curve for both is actually not that different. On first glance, yeah, you look at team. international team players and yeah they're growing pretty steadily and it looks promising but you realize the way that i broke this out was from how was their box plus minus how was their how was their play two years before their first team usa experience how was it a year before their first team usa experience then how was it the year after and how was it two years after and whether it was for world cup or whether it was for olympics that what i found was interestingly enough the period of highest growth actually came from their years, two years prior to their first Team USA experience to a year to the year before their t- first Team USA experience. So this actually kind of like disproves the Team USA doesn't make the player as much as the players make Team USA, right? So it actually looks more like Team USA is just keying on to players that have just broken out rather than Team USA being the reason that players break out. Yeah, that make that makes a lot of sense to to me. And like, actually, if you look at the aging curves for um, for box plus minus and for any sort of like plus minus metric in terms of uh, the adjusted plus minus metrics and things like that, like 
the younger you are, the more you're expected to improve up to, mm-hmm. I think, about age 27. And then you start to you, you peak there and you stay there for like two, like one or two years. And then you start to gradually come down. And like the the expected drop off is greater every year after 27. So like yeah. you're expected to drop off more at 31 than you did at you know 29 and the flip side is also true you're expected to improve more from 19 to 20 than from like 26 to 27 oh yeah generally like a lot of these international team players they'll make the international team within their either their third or their fourth season and that's usually when you look at the growth curve for good nba players like that's the season which like you know before it starts like sort of their growth starts kind of plateau a little bit is like they experience their largest periods of development from within their first five seasons. Yeah. So and so, like generally speaking, Team USA guys are are sent over to for the Olympics pretty close to around their peak years. So yep. it, it makes sense that it's um it's more the who's being selected for. So there's a little bit of like selection bias and then like i think the the on the on the back end there's the confirmation bias of like if somebody does have a really good season after having been on team usa that gets like thrown into this narrative of yeah they they improved because they were on team usa and like and even the players themselves will say yeah like yeah that was really important for me Mm -hmm. um because like they don't have necessarily the counterfactual of like well if i wasn't on team usa i probably still would have been you know busting my ass somewhere right um and i think that's like the the thing is that like really good players are gonna improve because they're really competitive and they're at a certain age where you do improve um and they're working on their games for the most part but yeah i think it's like the the it's definitely like a confirmation bias thing of like if a player goes to team usa and doesn't have an amazing season after you never hear about that yeah. And you only hear about it in the context of like reinforcing this idea that Team USA is like magic fairy dust, basically that makes player <laughs> make makes players get way better. Oh yeah, I um, think the Team USA stuff is like probably this Team USA narrative is one of the biggest examples you could think of for selection bias. Like that's if you if you wanted to teach a class in selection bias, like this is the first thing that you could open with and. And you're right. Well, on the confirmation bias side as well, right? You don't hear about the necessarily like the Mason Plumleys as well. They just fade a little bit back into obscurity. Like you, when you think about it, good players are going to play well. Don't be surprised if Paul George or Jimmy Butler goes out and like balls out next season. They're established stars. They're very good players. That's just what stars are expected to do. Yeah. You know, the best like counterexample to this is Kenneth Fareed. He was a key contributor he was one of the engines of that uh 2014 world cup team and you know he came back and what happened when he was in the nba faded right back into place like yeah it's not that he didn't suddenly become a star and i think that'd be foolish to expect someone like a harrison barnes to suddenly turn into a jimmy butler or a paul george or even someone a little less like these players are who they are like their growth isn't determined by Team USA, and heck, like, if Kenneth Fareed was the example, Kenneth Fareed was a key contributor to that team. Harrison Barnes was a bench warmer. Like, so, like, for a lot of, for the most part, like, these players 
are who we think they are, to quote Dennis Green. They are who <laughs> we think they are. Um, you know, the established studs are going to play like established stars while, you know, uh, B-level and C-level players are going to play like B-level and C-level players. I think you're absolutely right. We're so influenced by selection bias that you don't take that into account a lot of the time. It's a, it's it's truly a myth. Yeah, well, it, it was good a good job by you to uh, to sort of uh, dispel that, and uh, I'm sure that that narrative will still get thrown out there. <laughs> but every time I see it, I'll just be able to grab your piece and then like shoot it off to whoever's there you go. T- talking that nonsense. I'm like, nope, not not a thing. It's not real. <laughs> Uh, but that that won't stop people. I know, like uh, t- telling people that they're wrong on the internet never seems to, to no, change, ver- change not- very many minds. <laughs> but it's fine. Um, so uh, one of the other things that you wrote for for Nylon it was right around the time that uh, Kevin Durant left uh, Oklahoma City for Golden State. The Ringer came up with a game, uh, basically to, for anybody to try to put together a team. They could beat the Warriors using some kind of arbitrary but like fun salary. Uh, I put salary kind of in air quotes uh, yeah. restrictions. But uh, so you created a model to try to like maximize the odds of, of winning that game. Uh, what was your favorite sort of lineup that came out of that for a real matchup with the Warriors? So, and this was, I, I think this is probably one of my, one of the most fun I've had with working on these projects. And just because like I, I really love like looking at lineups and how teams function as units. Um, definitely, well, I guess so the cost constraint of the ringer game is you had to be under there, again, air quotes, $15 cost constraint with the salary air quotes values that they apply to certain players. My favorite lineup, the one that came out, my favorite lineup that I got was um, after accounting, after accounting and correcting was... Um, without cost controls, James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Pat Beverly, LeBron James, and Paul Millsap. Now, this was an insane lineup. Again, unfortunately, they this team was $7 over their ringer's cost limit, but I would take this team to battle, man. Like, that's a if you wanted to find a team to beat the Warriors, I think though, that team would do super well. You know, in the same mold as like uh, they a switch everything style, hyper athletic, very good. I mean, with the exception of James Harden, uh, and that's it, when he's not engaged. Uh, very good defensively, but also a, com- a very versatile team on both ends. I think that's. I think this was like probably the best lineup, one of the best lineups you could think of to beat the Warriors. And this is a team that fits. That seems on at least on paper to fit together really well too. Now yeah. granted on the Paul Millsap thing, like it was insane to figure this out, but Paul Millsap actually had a defensive box plus minus of 4.2, which was one of the highest for all players in the NBA and actually even higher than Draymond's. Wow. And so like if you had to pick someone like, you know, to emulate the Draymond position, I think you could do a lot worse than Millsap. Yeah, Paul Millsap is one of those guys that has been has been underrated for probably like the last well, forever. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I feel like since he's been in Atlanta. I mean, even when he was in Utah, he was really good. 
But, like, since he's gone to Atlanta, he's been, I just, I think he's, I think he's properly appreciated by, like, the people that pay attention to analytics. But mm-hmm. I think he's still very much an underappreciated player amongst, like, the general um, NBA fandom. Like, people that aren't necessarily uh, paying attention to things like box plus minus or, uh you know, real plus minus or, or any of those kinds of things. Um, I think it's, it's kind of hard to, um, if you're not really paying very close attention to see how important Millsap is, especially because so much of the damage he does is on, uh, the defensive end. Um, and like just generally speaking where I think, um, most fans and and even I would include myself in this to some extent. I think like it's just harder to evaluate. Oh, defense. for sure. So I think, you have to I think pay a lot closer attention. A lot more underappreciated than offensive statistics do, and I think that's just a function of like not properly having the resources to evaluate defense. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's a philosophical discussion in there that has been like kind of a becoming a through line in in my <laughs> these episodes so far. Like since I talked to um, Andrew Johnson about it in episode two, uh, just like the idea that there's some of it is with defenses that like we don't measure as, as much, but then there, I think there's also a part of it that um, offenses just have more control over the action. Than defenses, um, and so then it's like, well, how much does defense, like individual defense, matter? And like, right. how much of it is? Uh, I feel like, you know, to, to your uh, piece about offensive styles and how they're kind of not really actually correlated with efficiency. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, um, I think that with offense, you can like clearly see where talent really matters. Um, but with defense, there's like so much other stuff that goes into it. Like talent is part of it, but I feel like defensive talent is almost like smarts, you know, like it's, yeah. it's just different than how offense functions. And I think like when you have the ball, right, it's just a function of like, if you have the, if you're the one controlling the ball, there's a lot more things you can evaluate than if you're the team that doesn't have the ball. Right. Right. Yeah, I think like like you're like it's just when you have the ball you're attacking, right? So like yeah. you you're making specific choices about what's going to happen on this play and like the defense is always reactionary. And so they have to I mean the best defenses are so well scouted that they're not reactionary that they're actually anticipating what the mm-hmm. offense is going to do. Um, but for the most part, defense is a reactionary uh, so, sort of endeavor, and so they're they're always going to have a, a slight disadvantage, I think. Um, but yeah, that, that's like a, a very interesting sort of um, oh for sure uh, discussion, and like it, it has a lot of implications for how you evaluate um, players and sort of like what you you think about them, but. Um, any any way you kind of look at it, Paul Millsap is very underrated, and and mm-hmm. people uh, people um, that are not into analytics, I wish that they, I wish I had a, a non analytic way or non numbers heavy way of making the case for Paul Millsap, um, but it's very like I said, very hard to see right. the things he does. Um, he just doesn't make a lot of mistakes. I think like that's no. a 
uh, a good way to to say it. He's like he's he, really smart. He's really versatile. He does a lot of things well. Yeah. But you're right. Nothing nothing that he does like particularly is so flashy or sticks out that it uh, a lot of times it sticks for um, on the surface level. Yeah. But yeah, I I love that guy. He's really really good. Um, but uh, all right. Yeah. Well. <clears throat> so. To close up, I, I I know I mentioned it at the the outset that you, or maybe I didn't mention it on the outset of, of this recorded pod. I can't remember because we recorded the introduction, or, or we did the introduction I think three times, and I I only <laughs> recorded it the one time. So, um, but you have a you have a startup company that you're that you're working on that, that is uh, about preventing player injuries. Uh, yeah. It's called Zeal Solutions. Um, so I'm just going to open the floor for you to, to sort of <laughs> d- discuss that and uh, make your pitch because it, it sounds really cool, um, but I, I know very limited information about it. Uh, so so uh, the, the floor is kind of yours for that. All right. <laughs> I guess it's time for the hashtag shameless plugs. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So we have a startup. Uh, it's called, right, like you said, it's called Zeal Solutions. And what we've done is, We've developed uh, really like low-cost, high-efficient, like high-efficiency portable sensors that can track your muscle like muscle activity and your motion. So it helps you look at things like recreating the 3D motion pads and like it look and your muscle fatigue. So like in the first ca- uh, use case scenario that we're sort of trying it with uh, baseball pitchers is that you know. Pitching injuries a lot of time are a function of overuse and uh, repetitive stress. And so we're, the objective is that we can use our sensors, uh, embed them into like throwing sleeves that pitchers already generally wear anyway, and then use that to proactively and in real time track major risk factors for injury, such as their muscle fatigue, the stress exerted on their arm, their throwing motion, you know, things like that so that we can be proactive about preventing injuries and not not reactive as the state of this cur- currently is. So does does this uh, sort of technology that you have do you, do you for like envision it having applications to other sports like basketball or is it so far is it more narrowly focused on the pitcher's arm sort of market oh definitely not uh i think definitely you're the first option i think you know baseball is a was a great uh tool for us to use as evaluating the depth of our technology and that's a lot of why we're using that to begin but i i completely envision this and the beauty of the technology is that it can be applied to so many different things right basketball football you know, running, weightlifting, you name it. I mean, all we've done is we've taken the two things that drive your motion, your muscles and your and your movement. And right, those are the two things that define really like any sort of physical activity. And we're just helping you track that um, and be proactive about it. And so, like, I think the one of the great things about this is that it can be applied to such like a variety of different uh a variety of different activities and sports no matter what you want in fact like not just in the athletics realm but when you start getting into like repetitive stress injuries in the workplace that it's that's also from what a lot of what we've heard is a function of 
you know, overuse. And if you can track, you know, how your muscles are like that are connected around the wrist area, like that helps with that as well. I think, right, I think, so, so you're going to prevent me, you're going to prevent me from getting carpal tunnel at my desk. I, that's, that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be great. Cause I do get carpal tunnel from time to time and it, it's, it's not pleasant. Uh, so the, the, the inspiration for you to do this, this was, this was personal to you, right? Like you, you, uh, I think you, uh, you mentioned on the website for your, uh, for the, for the company that you, you blew out your arm when you were 14. Yeah. So this, so definitely when I was, when I was younger, um, I, re- I really didn't really know what to do. And I, I went to a fairly small high school yeah. and you know, one of the coaches was like, uh, we were just throwing around a football one day. And one of the coaches comes up to me and you're like, Oh my God, you're throwing some howlers out there. You should, you know, you should try playing baseball. I'd, I'd be interested to see what you do. I was, I was like, that's cool. So I started like training and, you know, trying to get up there and without any sort of proper coaching, you know, I was just sort of doing it on my own. Um, ended up like going through a series of injuries, which completely sapped that kind of velocity. Um, and so, you know, the more we think about it, like it's that kind of function that like, you know, it's, if we can help, like not help these players careers, like not get derailed. A lot of what we do now is, and with surgery and stuff is all very reactive. And I'm just trying to be very proactive, uh, about how we approach reducing injuries and, you see that a lot. I mean, even in basketball, like we've had an uptick in injuries that we, in, or at least in high-profile injuries over the last few years, that have you know really altered the landscape of a certain season. And yep. the hope is just that if we can do anything to the ones that are avoidable, right? You can't do anything about freak accidents, but things that are avoidable as functions of conditioning, overuse, etc. That if you can avoid that which is avoidable then it just makes the on-field product and a lot better for everyone and you keep your you keep your best talent on the floor fat on the floor for longer stretches of time and that helps your bottom line which is to win yeah i think um yeah if if you can solve uh carpal tunnel and prevent uh future uh derrick rose uh acl tears that <laughs> Uh, not that you can't you can't go back in time and prevent the ones that, that he already suffered, but uh, it, it, if you can if you can prevent uh, the, the, whoever the next generation's uh, version of Derrick Rose is from from having that kind of injury, that would be that would be huge. Yeah. So for sure. In terms of where the where your, your company sort of is at now, are you input like production of the? Um, the the sleeve i guess it is right now right. or so or you... we're so i guess uh the best way is to say we're in the fourth prototyping phase and so this is the one that once uh we get this ready it's going to be uh the ones that are used for the beta tests like on field beta tests and then from these betas which we use primarily as a data collection mechanism to refine like the software component of this then we'll be ready to start moving towards a production version of the of these sensory sleeves. Um, so we're in sort of a fourth prototype phase development, but while still working on business development on the side, um, or yeah. business development in parallel. Like we've we've talked with a lot of like really awesome. Like the Houston baseball community has been very supportive. Um, the startup community around here has just been great. And it's a little smaller than what you see in places like Silicon Valley, which I think helps us be a lot closer together. Um, 
they so they've it's been we've gotten a lot of support and i think working on this um you know it's been really cool it's it's i'm sort of enjoying the ride as it is right as a student you didn't think like coming into college like three and a half years ago that like you'd be i'd be anywhere near this position but you know they we people like in fact Mark Cuban backs a startup tour, ideas tour called Recess. And Recess had a stop at Rice University last year. And our, our startup competed in that competition. And, you know, as the winners from Rice, they flew us out to LA for a national pitch competition where we finished third and got like all sorts of crazy exposure from that, including uh, Peace and Forbes. And like, that's awesome. It's just been it's it's been an incredible journey. I'm just I'm really just like sort of taking it as it is, one step at a time right now. Excited to see how things progress. Yeah, that's that's uh, th- that's a piece of it that I I was uh, I didn't realize that you had that you had gotten uh, those opportunities. That's awesome. Do you think this is something that you'll uh, you'll take on Shark Tank one day? <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact, like we we had a shot. So Shark Tank came to Houston for auditions, and we were actually invited to try out. Uh, that was in our in our in the infancy so it didn't really go too far but i think you know a year or two down the line uh when we're a little farther along i think i definitely wouldn't be if mark cuban if you're listening i definitely (laughs) wouldn't be opposed to trying that trying that again one day yeah that that would it sounds like it sounds like it would be something that that uh, it definitely sounds like the kind of thing that uh you know, I don't know Mark. Like, despite having interned for the Mavs, I don't. I don't know Mark Cuban personally. Uh, there's a, 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 a quite a few uh, degrees of separation between the interns and 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 the owner of the franchise. But um, yeah, I mean, just like from paying attention to the stuff he seems to be into, uh, it, it sounds like something that would interest him at the very least. Oh yeah. Um, and like, it, I don't understand. Like, you'd be it'd be crazy for anybody like in the in the athletic space to not uh be interested in it i think um it's it's a really uh obvious, to me it seems like a great idea are you guys is the plan for the software component to be an app at some point or is yeah. it so the software is definitely uh it's meant to be an app and so you know there's like wireless communication between the sensors that are on the player and uh, the application on the sideline so to say for the coaches and trainers to be able to monitor and yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot, it's really cool because there's a lot of companies now that are starting to get very interested in this space. And yeah. I think like, you know, it's a very, it's very much going to be a synergistic effort. The more everyone in this space can move forward, you know, the better it is for everyone involved. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how the NBA is going to end up handling this stuff because I know like they currently have rules against wearing certain kinds of sensors, mm-hmm. like while you're playing, like. I think uh, Delhi got fined, for, uh, like Matthew Delavadova got fined for wearing uh, some kind of tracker on his wrist. Um, yeah. Or, or I forget exactly where where he was wearing it, but he got fined for that. And I, I feel like the NBA is going to have to kind of like evolve their position right. on that because um, if this stuff like is uh, helping players prevent injuries. And, and is going to keep their their you know most prized uh, assets the their talent like their talent on the floor then they'd be crazy to to have that stuff be be sort of banned. Well, um, for, and even with baseball, like this is 
it, you the NBA almost is going to have no choice, and other leagues as well. Sports in general is going to have no choice but to evolve, and baseball itself has very much started like loosening up all its restrictions in the past couple of years on the exact on this exact topic in terms of wearable use of wearable tech in game. Yeah. So if if on the on the extremely small chance that Adam Silver is listening, Adam Silver, you gotta you gotta loosen this loosen that up. <laughs> you you can't let you can't let baseball be more progressive than you on anything. Like that's just exactly. not where you want to be. <laughs> I'll have to talk to Adam Silver when Chris and I when Chris Pickard and I head head up there for the analytics hackathon. I'll have to. Oh, that's right. That's coming right up, right? Isn't it? I I almost forgot to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, so when is that? That's like in That's on that, the 24th. So it's in a couple weeks. Yeah, so that's that's very soon. Um that's like not that far away from me. I was tempted to go down and just like uh see if they they would let me in to like mill, ar- <laughs> mill around. Obviously I like I'm not in college anymore, so I can't be on a team, but I was I wanted to go down and like just see if I could uh talk to people, but oh, um that- I don't. I don't know if I don't know if the NBA is going to let me do that. Maybe I can. Uh, maybe I can talk to Seth and Ian and see if see if they can make it happen. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, that, you guys are. I'm sure going to do uh, nylon proud. Um, and uh, looking forward to to seeing how you guys do. Um, but forward. That, it should be an exciting experience. Yeah. So so that's a couple of weeks from now. So you're you're flying to New York then uh, for that weekend. Uh, that, that that's gonna be cool. Maybe, maybe I will see if I can sneak down there just to totally like, head down. Yeah, yeah. Go. Uh, my my girlfriend always is looking for an excuse to go to New York. Uh, <laughs> see, there you uh, go. I certainly don't mind going to New York. Uh, it's definitely uh, preferable to to Hartford. <laughs> so yep. we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But that play a quick that, game of pickup while we're there too. Yeah, for sure. I I never get to play uh, hoops as much as I would like because I. There's it's either the weather's like too hot or then it's cold or um, and I don't know very many indoor gyms around here. Anyways, that's a very like crazy digression to go on. <laughs> that's that's an issue that I have with the Hartford area is not knowing where <laughs> not knowing where any indoor basketball courts are for me to play in. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so, well that's I almost completely forgot about about the the hackathon. But yeah, anybody that. Um, I think that everybody had to have already been signed up, but yeah. that's a, that's something to pay attention to for people that are listening to this podcast, like to see how the results of the hackathon come come along because whoever does well at that, I'm sure is going to be names that you're going to end up hearing uh, going forward. Cause that's like a good stage to um, be impressive on. And I have uh, no doubt that you and Chris will do a great job. We hope so. We hope so too. Um, all right, Santo. Like uh, I've, I've between the the podcast that I did not record and now this, I, I've occupied your time for a good ninety minutes. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you uh, get your omelets from the uh, from the dining hall. Um, <laughs> but but uh, it was great to have you on. Do you? Uh, what? So what's your Twitter handle again? I, I know um, it's your name, but it's like spelled yeah. funny. Uh, it's at Senthus. Uh, so this actually, it's the the origin is from when someone mispronounced my name in middle school. But so it's <laughs> at Senthus. You know, I don't know if Twitter has a thing against capitalizations or not, but it's in any case, it's all caps S E N T H one S 
at S E N T H one S. So that's that's where people can find me milling around on all sorts of basketball and other unrelated stuff. Yeah, and uh, Sentel's uh, the the startup is Zeal Solutions. That's Z I E L. Um, you should check out their website. Uh, you can <laughs> you can see uh, Sentel give it give his pitch. Uh, it's uh, it's very impressive and. Uh, yeah, th- thanks so much for coming on. And uh, thank you, it's been great. Ha- it's been great doing this. Yeah, and looking forward to to seeing uh, you and Chris rep nylon at the uh, the hackathon, and we'll, we'll have to have you on again uh, down the line in the season uh, when you've uh, written more stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you so much, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, thank you again right. for coming on. I appreciate it. Sure, have a good day. You too.